0: That idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Ada Limon, author of the poetry collection, The Hurting Kind.
1: I think really The Hurting Kind for me was about those of us that are tender to the world, that are receptive and porous to the world around us. We'll be back with Ada Limon after these essential words.
0: First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash writers. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Ada Limon, the author of six poetry collections, including The Carrying, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Bright Dead Things, which was named a finalist for the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Kingsley Tufts Award. Limone is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and her work has appeared in the New Yorker, the New York Times, and American Poetry Review, among others. She is the host of the weekday poetry podcast, The Slowdown. Her new collection is called The Hurting Kind, which explores the natural world and our place in it, our human sensitivities and frailties, where our power lies, and how we excavate memory to inform our present. Throughout the collection are interrogations that linger on the idea of being seen, how loss shapes us, and how family structure makes us stronger. We began the discussion with Ada Limon talking about the words of the title, The Hurting Kind.
1: It was interesting. Um, The title was hard for me to come up with because it seemed I was really drawn to The Hurting Kind as a title, but I was also a little terrified of it (laughs) because it has the word hurt in it um and i this book i think has so much hope and resilience and beauty in it that i was worried that labeling it with that hurt would be i don't know doing a disservice to the other poems that speak or lean into the light but i think really the hurting kind for me was about those of us that are tender to the world that are receptive and porous to the world around us and our understanding of that reciprocity between the earth and the human animal. And I wanted to kind of pay homage to the ancestors that came before that have been that kind of porous person, um, those kind of porous people. Um, And also I wanted to, I guess, in some ways, praise the way in which we can allow ourselves to be hurt by the world. to grieve, to feel. And I think so often we don't get that opportunity that we're not allowed to do that. We praise braveness. We, put, we praise courage, strength. How brave, how courageous, how strong. We don't really praise the weeping, the grieving, the tenderness. And I think I just, I wanted to do that with this book.
0: What, what do you think it is about poetry that does that? We, we're not even reading it. We're talking about it and I'm crying.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it makes space for that though. I mean, that's, I think that it, it's really at its core. Like that's the work of it is that it makes space for the full spectrum of human emotion, which I don't think we allow ourselves on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I I think there's reasons for that. I mean, I think com- compartmentalization and self-protection and self-preservation is all part of what we have to do. We have to put our walls up to be strong, right? I mean, as a woman walking down the street, how many times are you told to smile? And then how many times have you smiled and then gotten really negative and and sometimes violent repercussions because of a smile? I think there's a reason we have to put our armor up all the time. Um, And I think poetry is the place we get to take our armor off. And it's the only place I can be totally free, you know?
0: Your last poem, which is called The End of Poetry. And if it's okay to to read the last line, you say, I'm asking you to touch me. And so we get to this place where we're talking about some, a lot of imagery, but we end up in this place where it's like really about physical touch and connection. And if you'd like to read it, you can read it and we can talk about it.
1: I'd be happy to. Yeah, that poem's ending really, or this poem's ending really surprised me in the process of writing it. Um, I wrote it at a moment when I was a little bit feeling forsaken by poetry. I guess that's the right word. Um, I think that it was the beginning of the pandemic. um, And it really felt like you know, between the pandemic, the climate crisis, the state of our world, (laughs) um, it just kind of felt like, what is the point of this? What is the point of writing? What is the point of reading? (laughs) Um, And I think um, I needed to find some way to hold on to that. Um, And the funny thing was, is I sort of, it sort of began as this sort of interrogation of what I couldn't do, and then it, it surprised me at the end. So this is a poem called The End of Poetry. Enough of osseous and chickadee and sunflower and snowshoes, maple and seeds, samurai and shoot. Enough kioscuro, enough of thus and prophecy and the stoic farmer and faith and our father and tis of thee. Enough of bosom and bud, skin and God not forgetting and star bodies and frozen birds. Enough of the will to go on and not go on, or how a certain light does a certain thing. Enough of the kneeling and the rising and the looking inward and the looking up. Enough of the gun, the drama and the acquaintance's suicide, the long lost letter on the dresser. Enough of the longing and the ego and the obliteration of ego. Enough of the mother and the child, and the father and the child. And enough of the pointing to the world, weary and desperate. Enough of the brutal and the border. Enough of, can you see me? Can you hear me? Enough, I am human. Enough, I am alone and I am desperate. Enough of the animal saving me. Enough of the high water. Enough sorrow. Enough of the air and its ease. I am asking you to touch me.
0: So with that surprise ending, do you remember, like, what, was it iterative? Was it like a wake up in the middle of the night? Like, how did that come to you?
1: Uh, It came to me um, through the poem itself, like most endings do for me, is that I was working on the poem, and I just felt like I had this sort of, um, it was kind of about, to me, the failure of poetry. And I was sort of, sick of all my own subjects. (laughs) Everything that I was sort of drawn to, I thought, oh, I can't write about that again. Like, you know, what is the point of this work? And of course, as I went, I got sort of haunted and addicted to the music of the words and the language itself drew me in. And then I was kind of in this sort of rhythmic some, you know, l- lyrical trance of sorts of like, oh, I'm just listening to this poem build. Um and uh and I didn't know where it was going to end. I didn't, you know, it felt like it could go on forever because you could just list enough of anything. And then um and then I realized that that, that was really the response was that sometimes poetry isn't enough, right? You know, we want we want it to be enough. It is so much. But at some point sometimes we want Physical touch. We need a hug. We need companionship. We need a friend. Um, we need a human connection. Um, and I think that that surprised me because I didn't expect that 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 would go in that direction.
0: And is that idea of human connection partly what also fueled the the poem, "The Hurting Kind"? Because you were you were talking about you know the the title and that you know basically that this idea of vulnerability but also about the world, the natural world. But that poem comes back so much to your ancestors.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, The Hurting Kind is the sort of anchor poem in in the book. And um, for me, it's really about honoring ancestors, particularly my grandfather. And um, I wanted to, it took me a really long time. I think it took me two years to finish that poem, Um, maybe three. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I kept editing it and, and trying to figure out what I was doing with it. I also could not figure out how to end that poem. So I think the ending is sort of a, a surrender to its endlessness, <laughs> um, but I, uh, <clears throat> I really wanted to try to examine what it is to grieve and to lose someone and the sort of absurdity of death I think we don't talk about that very often. Like we, we talk about, you know, I'm so sorry you lost someone and, and how hard that is, but really like death is a series of strange paperwork (laughs) and these strange things that you have to do in order to sort of even go through the process of grieving the person. You're also doing this phone calls and canceling things and, Reporting and going to the funeral home, and all of these things that feel just so absurd and surreal and otherworldly. And yet we go through them every day. And um, I think I've always been really curious about how it is that we handle all of these things. I just, I'm always sort of overwhelmed by the fact that human beings go about our lives and do all of these things. We, you know, we go, we stop by the funeral parlor, we pick up flowers, we make arrangements. And, and at the same time, you know, we're we're grieving a whole human life inside of us. And I'm just, uh, I wanted to pay homage to that, but I also wanted to really recognize him and then the love between him and my grandmother who had been married, you know, for so many years that, um, I I just, I was so curious as to for what it was for her to lose someone that she, you know, she's now, um, 97 and, um, they were married when she was 18. Um, and so, you know, they, their togetherness, their story, their love story was, is epic. It is epic. Um, and so I wanted to also, uh, honor that too. So the poem really is about um, there's a, there's a line in the poem that's about, you know, you can't sum it up a life. And um, I think it's trying to do that. It's really trying to recognize that you can't sum it up. (laughs) And so when someone goes, we, you know, we, we fail and, an attempt at um, elegies and eulogies, and we do the work of obituaries and all of those things, you know, but nothing we say really does the work of honoring that complete and full person because it's impossible. Um, But I kind of wondered if maybe a poem could at least attempt to recognize that failure um, and do the work of maybe pointing out how difficult it is to even explain someone else to the world.
0: Something too about death that fascinates me and always has is like the body part. Is that sometimes I think we, at least maybe in my heritage, I grew up Jewish and there's all these rituals around how you grieve. But in general, death is looked at as such this emotional loss. But just like your last poem, which comes back to touch, Mm. there's a whole ritual around the body. Like, what do you do with this body? Yeah. The batteries have been turned off. Right. That physical space is so fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think I completely agree with that and I think it's um it's just such a mystery and it's one of those things again we don't talk about, you know, we we keep death so separate from us mm-hmm. in our culture. Um it's so very much um sterilized, right? We're, you know, we're supposed to call the coroner immediately and they come and take the body and, you know, it just becomes like this um, the practice of sterilization. And I, and I get it. I understand that. Um, But I also think it is so bizarre that we have this moment where someone is there and then it's not there. I remember when my stepmother passed away in 2010, I was with her and that was this moment of just like, Oh, there is someone there. And now there is not someone there. And, um, I like, I don't think I'll ever understand that. I think it was a great, one of the great gifts of my life to be present in that moment. Um, but I also remember not being the same after that. I think that it truly shifted who I am as a person and, I think, you know, I'm okay with that, but I remember this, like going back to New York and going back to my job and being like, okay, I'm going to, you know, live my life. And having that moment return to me so often, and then being on the subway and looking around and really having a moment of being like, oh, everyone is going to go through that. Not just themselves, but they're going to lose someone. They're going to lose a parent. They're going to lose a friend, a partner you know, and then it's gonna happen to us. And it was like, how is this even possible? Like, it just felt completely, like it it felt like it was all we should talk about all the time.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's all such a mystery. I mean, you could, if you really sat down and think of it, you'd probably get nothing done because you'd just be thinking about like, first of all, like, how are we even going? you know, like there's no battery pack. It's no. kind of amazing. Like this spirit is energy. I mean, sometimes I'm just blown away.
1: I mean, I think like, I think to dedicate your life to poetry, I think is in some ways dedicating your life to wonder and curiosity. Um, at least for me it is, but I think that there's a certain amount of, you know, that kind of deep looking that deep attention that keeps us coming back to the same subjects, so the same thing. I'm staring at this tree right now, right outside my window. Um, it's a, it's a large silver maple. It's probably, you know, over 75 years old and, um, it's, we were having some strange weather today and it's just shaking, shaking, and shaking, and shaking. It looks like everything is alive. And if I look really closely underneath all those leaves and on one branch is a squirrel and it's his little tail is shaking too. And I just love it. But like, this is me just looking out, you know, something out the window. And I feel like if we're just, if we do that kind of dedication to wonder and awe and looking and it's, how do you not look at the body and the human experience? And also, I mean, I, I want to say, and I don't know if this is true. and Maybe this is true. <laughs> maybe this is true today. I don't know. Today is a strange day, but is that it makes you really think about the ways we value each other and the ways that we recognize mortality and the time that we have that sort of this, this present moment. And without getting too philosophical about it, I do think, you know, the work of poems for me is always about bringing me back into this world where I do think I can be in my mind a lot (laughs) and I can get lost up there. And I love my mind, um, but it is, it, it, it really does feel like a place I go to and can just sort of spend all of this time and be like, I'm thinking about this and here are my thoughts. And, um, and so I think the poem is a physical act um, and it feels like it's a, a moment of, of re-tethering myself to the world. Um, and I think it's really important for me just as a human being, the act of creating it. Um, regardless of whether it's read or ever done or any of those things. I think making it is, um, is really important somehow just to um, my body and my mind and my heart, <laughs> my blood, all of those things.
0: So one of the, you know, I wouldn't say it's juxtapose, juxtaposed or different than this idea of sort of wonder and awe. But there's also a great sense of longing in your poems. and I got this sense that this idea of, of really being seen by the world, and that's mm. I think that's I, I actually think it's like a primal need. You know, if I was gonna edit Maslow's hierarchy, I would I would probably put being seen somewhere along the bottom with food and shelter that yeah. a primal need, and you have a poem in there called Banishing Wonders, and you say in there, what is it to be seen in the right way as who you are, a flash of color, a blur in the crowd, something spectacular, but untouchable. So I wanted to talk about that, but also i that wasn't the only poem that that idea came out.
1: Yeah, um, I love that you brought that up because I think it's really essential to this book. Um, and usually when I say this book, like whatever is my most like current project and the thing that I'm in love with is, you know, like, oh, right, these are my obsessions. So it's, if it's the new book, it's because it's, um that's what's on my mind. <laughs> um, they're not separate. Um, I'm always like amazed that people can do that. Like, oh, this is something I worked on then and I am feel this way now. And I'm always like, no, nah, they're all to me the same thing. But um, I, uh I'm very interested in the idea of not just being not just witnessing right but but being witnessed being seen and I think so often as an artist we think our job is to look and we just talked about that like that deep looking that deep attention but I think as a human (laughs) what we also need is to be not just seen but to be beheld And I think that that, that is like when that happens and when someone can do that for you, or when you see an animal looking at you and it just feels like, Oh, I am being witnessed as part of community. You know, as you know, I watch the crows and the crows watch me and we have, they know my routine and I know theirs and here we are together. And it is that kind of connection, interconnection. And also that, you know, that sense of, working against aloneness, you know, that, I, that idea that we aren't separate, um, all of those things are at play in this book, but I I really being, being seen and being witnessed and not always being the person to look and, and report and record, but sometimes to be able to be received yourself, I think is, um, is really important in, as a human being, as, as a human experience
0: what has your experience been of that? If I remember last time we talked, I think you, you had worked in the magazine world in New York and here you are a poet, you're the same person. I mean, obviously you've grown and changed, but I have this sense sometimes that depression and anxiety in our world is an amalgam of many things. And one of them is when we aren't living our genius, Mm -hmm. you know, and that when we maybe can't be seen for what we really have to offer because we're in a job where we're doing data entry and we're really like a a wonderful dancer in a tutu, that it causes depression. And I'm wondering if your life has changed or if you feel more seen in your transition in your career.
1: I love that you say that. I think that's so true in so many ways. I think that my goal (laughs) has been, and we've talked about this, to try to align myself it's like align myself and my work as closely as possible. Um, because as you know, like it was a long time where I worked in magazines. I love magazines. I worked with great people. I had amazing teams. And I'm not saying that in a sort of dismissive, like, no, you know, don't get mad at me. I just, they really were wonderful people, wonderful human beings, creative and caring. And I think that there was a time though that, you know, I felt like a secret poet, like this, a, you know, secret, you hide yourself, you know, you hide your grief, you hide your most vulnerable self. And that's how we all have to live. Right. Like that's, like I said before that it's, it's part of that self-preservation. It's like, okay, you can't just go to the tire store and get a new tire. And when they say, how are you doing, you can't be like, well, you know, I had a crazy appointment this morning with the doctor and this happened and it really hurt. And I cried a little, but you know, like you just, you can't say that you have to say, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good weather. We're having, you know, I mean, this is that's life, right? That's what we, we sort of like, there's this sort of moment where, It's the agreed upon, (laughs) you know, courtesy that we allow ourselves to, to move in the world with, with somewhat of a, um, guarded nature. Uh, but I think that the more and more I become more aligned with who I am and, and just trying to be who I am on a day-to-day basis, I do think I'm a happier person. I think I'm a more complete person. I still have depression and anxiety, but I don't think they're as bad. Um, They feel to me like they come for me, they come from circumstances more as opposed to from a deep sort of unalignment of the soul. So now it sort of comes from the outside and I can recognize it. And I mean, not saying that sometimes it doesn't come from the inside too. And I hear a voice in my head, just being like, God, you're so wrong about everything you're so dumb, (laughs) you know, whatever it is, that's my brain is saying. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm better at being like, no, this is, this is good. And uh, this is a, you know, this is a good life. And I think, um, that kind of pretending that one has to do (laughs) to live in the world can be really hard. Um, I don't know if it's lying, you know, but I do think there's a level in which not, it's just that, that split self all the time. Like, okay, now I get to come home and be who I am. And what a strange thing to have to live in the world and not be who you are. And so many people who deal with identity issues, with gender, you know, issues, and they've spent their their whole life being like, I'm a split self. I am, you know, having this moment where I cannot be fully who I am. And I just think we have to be really careful with each other because so many of us have, are, are dealing with that and we don't know it. We don't always see it in the other person. We always think, you know, I'm sure you get this where people will say like, oh, you seem so great or everything's, fine." you know, there's this lot of like, we can put a good face on everything and, you know, I, more and more so it's like I'll kind of like, okay, if you, if you, if we want to put a good face on it, let's do it. But if we want to, you know, get into the nitty gritty, let's get into the nitty gritty.
0: I know this makes me think like, what if we started a radical vulnerability circle and we committed to spend a month being radically vulnerable and that when we mm-hmm. go to change our tires, we actually answer honestly Yeah. And we back in a month and share our stories. What would we find?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a really interesting idea because the I have noticed that when you do it a little bit, even just a little bit, right, um, people will respond in a true way, which is really beautiful and sometimes overwhelming, right? That's the other part is that if you can trust them with your true self and they feel like they can trust you with their true selves, that that moment can be like, oh, right, life is very difficult. And here we are just getting this tire changed. But like, I'm so sorry that you're going through that. I'm so sorry you're going through that, you know, and that, I mean, that is, I think in essence, the the beauty of human connection. And I think sometimes we just have to recognize it's also there, even if we're not saying it, right. There's something there's, there's there's something there.
0: Yeah. And maybe sometimes we underestimate what is going on in other people that maybe we need to give them more credit so that we can have a more compassionate world if we were more vulnerable with what Another, but it's so precarious.
1: It's very hard. It's very hard to have. I mean, um, I do this thing where I set an intention every day, and I wake up in the morning. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm sure, like you're you're human beings, so I'm sure it's the same. Where you just wake up, and it's like the list of all the things that are happening, and you know, you're kind of extricating yourself from your dream life, and and pushed into the reality. And you're like, okay, what day is it? We're, you know, what's happening? Let's, what do I need to worry about? (laughs) Where's my anxiety? Where's my pain? It's like my brain. And so I started doing this thing where before I even kind of go into all of that, I'm like, oh, what's my intention for the day? How do I want to set this day? And it's been really wonderful. And I think I've been doing it for almost two years now. And I, kind of thought, oh, I'll just, oh, I'll do it for a month. And then I just, it, it just really has, has shifted something in me. And uh, yesterday's the word was just compassion and I didn't know I needed it. And the funny thing was, is that I thought it was going to be just for others. Like I was like, I need to be more compassionate and patient with others and all this stuff. And then I had this moment where I was like, oh, I, I also really needed to be compassionate with myself, you know, and I was always just going outward, outward, outward. And I was like, no, I need that inward, movement too. And yeah, I think it's, but I do think it's really true that we talk about poetry as this sort of empathetic tool or tool for empathy. And I think sometimes there is that idea of what's going on within me is also going on within everyone. You know, I mean, like I said, that subway moment of just like, oh, I'm not the only person that has lost someone. I'm not the only person who's been in the room when that, that person's gone. I'm not. And it just was like, how is everyone alive? Like, how is everyone like, not just weeping into their cardboard cup of coffee and just like laying on the floor, <laughs> and like touching the third rail. Like I don't understand it. <laughs> and it just was like, but it also gave me some kind of hope of like, Oh, right. There is a level in which like this ongoingness, the sense of um, working towards a longevity and um, was really beautiful too. And like, yeah, you still gotta get your kids to school. You still gotta brush your teeth. You still gotta make a living. You still have to, you know, take care of each other. And that was also a real gift as much as it was a sort of (laughs) mind-blowing unhinged experience of my own, which was odd that I had to be like, wait until my thirties to have that experience, but it's true.
0: Well, one of the things that, you know, your poetry collection also, it's a huge celebration of joy. Thank um, you. So, yeah. don't want to lose that as well. Yeah. The natural world of birds and your, your, your stepfather and, and, and lessons from the earth about like animals only eating what they need, this yeah. natural harmony that exists sometimes only in the natural world. Like we're mm-hmm. not there yet. So um, you wanted to talk about that.
1: You know, I think joy is incredibly important, but I also think it exists. Like, I think it's not an artifice, right? It's not a thing that, um, you know, uh, that I sit down and be like, I'm going to write this joyful poem and, and it's going to be this thing and I'm going to find it. I think we actually are like, if you, to know me, uh, to really know me is to know me laughing <laughs> and to, you know, to to like, you yeah, am laughing with the dog and laughing at the dog or the dog is laughing at me or we're having some sort of experience but I'm always like I see I find a lot of wonder and joy in the world and I think sometimes um when we make art we're very drawn to the dark shadows and to revealing those dark shadows and to go into the bottom of the well and really spend time there and I think that's such a incredible talent and, and urge that um, poets have to go into those dark spaces and to allow some illumination. Um, And at the same time, I think there's also, we have to make room for those moments. That's like actually joyful that are, and sometimes even if it's not joy and it's just contentedness, like maybe a moment of peace, which I think is very hard to write about because we believe in the drama, (laughs) we believe in the tension, that there has to be something happening in order for the witnessing to make sense. But I think in reality, the drama of the human experience is always there because it's at the core of our existence, which is we are born and we will die. (laughs) So I think that, you know, Just even the act of living is an act of drama. It has a tension in it, and the tension is between the two planes of life and death. Um, And so I think um, joy for me is at the core of that because it is also a way of exploring our full humanity. Because I think for so long, I thought all poems needed to just really lean into the trauma and do that work. And I really believe in that work. I mean, this is not dismissive of that whatsoever because I believe in the work I've done. I believe in the work I do. And I believe that poets who work in trauma and the language of grief are doing an incredible service to all of us and that we need those poems. But at, on balance, we also need the poems that lean towards the light. And we need the poems that are like, yeah, you know what? This was okay. And to watch this and to sit and watch this was enough. Um And I think about that a lot, the idea of like, what is enough? What is enough to make a poem? What is enough to be alive? Um, And I think that so often we, you know, feel like in order to have a dramatic tension and in creative work, it needs to have some kind of uh, punch in the gut. And sometimes I think it doesn't. Sometimes I think it just needs to really be witnessing.
0: In your poem, not the saddest thing in the world you have a line in there that says between the ground and the feast is where i live now is that basically everything you were just saying
1: yes (laughs) much more eloquently and (laughs) succinctly
0: do you want to read that one
1: sure i'd be happy to um I, i wrote this poem and, you know, it was interesting because this poem has a lot of different references to it, but I didn't want to make the references overt. And I'm not quite sure why, but it felt like there were so many things happening um, that I felt like I couldn't, I didn't want to do a disservice to any of those one things by sort of naming it all. So instead, I sort of stayed on the one event. not the saddest thing in the world all day i feel some itchiness around the collar constriction of living i write the date at the top of a letter though no one has been writing the year lately i write the year seems like a year you should write huge and round and awful in between my tasks i find a dead fledgling maybe dove maybe don't know to be honest too embryonic, too see-through and we I don't even mourn him. Just all matter-of-fact-like, take the trowel, plant the limp body with a new hosta under the main feeder. Seems like a good place for a close-eyed thing, forever closed-eyed, under a green plant, in the ground, under the feast up above. Between the ground and the feast is where I live now, Before I bury him, I snap a photo and beg my brother and my husband to witness this nearly clear body. Once it has been witnessed and buried, I go about my day, which isn't ordinary exactly because nothing is ordinary now, even when it is ordinary. Now something's breaking always on the skyline, falling over and over against the ground, sometimes unnoticed sometimes covered up like sorrow, sometimes buried without even a song.
0: Is there anything else that you would want to share about writing that?
1: The poem was actually written around the death of George Floyd. Um, You know, here we were in the pandemic, here we were with this horrific death and it felt like, then this, you know, I found this dove and I could only write about that. And that was sort of where I kept my attention, but at its core, um, those two things are happening in the poem for me, Um, which is that idea of feeling like something's always breaking on the horizon and also what it is to witness that death that was so horrific and replayed over and over again. And then also what it was to have that moment of people moving on from it, which was you know I mean I I, I mean I think luckily it was a turning point in our society, um, hopefully, but I do think uh, it was strange to just realize we also that oh that's just the world we live in kind of thing, um, and so I think all those things are at play in that poem for me. They may not be at play for the listener or for the reader, but um, they are for me as the writer.
0: And my favorite ending was in Intimacy, and it was kind of a a surprise ending, maybe like a turn or something where, and if you would like to read it, that would be great, um, mm-hmm. and then we can
1: talk about it. Yeah. Um. This is an ending, I know exactly what you're talking about. The ending surprised me too. Um, I didn't know it was gonna be about separateness. I should probably not have said that before I read it, but I'm gonna, I already did, it's yes. out there. Intimacy. I remember watching my mother with the horses, the cool fluid way she'd guide those enormous bodies around the long field. The way she'd shoulder one aside if it got too close, if it got greedy with the alfalfa or apple. I was never like that, never so confident around those four legged giants who could kill with one kick or harm with one toss of their strong heads. To me, it didn't make sense to trust a thing that could destroy you so quickly, to reach out your hand and stroke the deep separateness of a beast, that long gap of silence between you, knowing it would eat the apples with as much pleasure from any flattened palm. Is that why she moved with them so easily? There is a truth in that smooth indifference, a clean honesty about our otherness that feels not like the moral, but the story.
0: Yeah. Was that an ending that was a struggle because you sort of turn it, this idea on its head?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that, you know, because we're always like thinking about like intimacy and like what it is to really know each other. And I think we can't really do that with each other, <laughs> right? We think, I mean, this is what we crave. This is what we desire. This is what we long for is real intimacy And then when we try to presume we can do it with a non-human animal, and I'm not saying you can't have a deep connection. I'm not saying you can't have mutual respect. All of these things that can't happen with an animal. Um, I think they can, but I think I'm very interested in the idea of what it is, the mystery of the unknowing between us, that separateness. The thing that will never be fully explored, it can never be languaged. I find that fascinating. And I was thinking about my mother on the retired uh, horse ranch that she used to um, be the caretaker on for 17 years. And um, she just moved so easily with them, so confidently. And part of me was so curious because my mother does not move that way around people. Um, She's an introvert, she's quiet. She doesn't trust humans. And so I was very fearful around the horses, but she wasn't at all. And I think it was because there was this understanding, which was the sort of contract of like, I will do this for you. You will do this for me. And we will kind of mutually glide in this field, in our separateness. And I didn't expect that from the poem. I didn't expect that memory to to come to me. But it did feel like making space for the fact that there is a mystery, you know, between us and the animals that will always be there. And to presume otherwise is also a little bit of hubris on our end, or maybe a great deal of hubris on our end.
0: Can you read something by an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: I remember finding this poem in, um, I was an undergraduate, I think I was 20 years old. And I remember just being blown away and thinking, this, this is it, this is what I want to do. This is Waiting for Icarus by Muriel Rukeyser. He said he would be back and we'd drink wine together. He said that everything would be better than before. He said we were on the edge of a new relation. He said he would never again cringe before his father. He said that he was going to invent full time. He said he loved me, that going into me, he said, was going into the world and the sky. He said all the buckles were very firm. He said the wax was the best wax. He said, wait for me here on the beach. He said, just don't cry. I remember the gulls and the waves. I remember the islands going dark on the sea. I remember the girls laughing. I remember they said he only wanted to get away from me. I remember mother saying, inventors are like poets a trashy lot. I remember he told me, I remember she told me those who try out inventions are worse. I remember she added women who love such are the worst of all. I have been waiting all day or perhaps longer. I would have liked to try those wings myself. It would have been better than this.
0: Do you want to share any reasons why you chose that?
1: I just I love that poem so much because I think it's such a deeply feminist poem Um, and I think it's also the idea about celebrating sort of the the woman artist Um, and the idea of also like what it is to to flip the myth on its head and to be the person then waiting for Icarus to come back and then of course you know Icarus doesn't come back but this kind of turning that around and then that wonderful last line of i would have liked to try those things myself it would have been better than this that idea of like i would have been wanting to take that risk um even if it meant certain death uh and i just think muriel rickheiser is one of the greatest poets that um that ever was i just adore her she has this quote um which i thought was is so beautiful it says Writing is only another way of giving, a courtesy, if you will, and a form of love. Just I've love
0: never her. heard of her.
1: Yeah, this is the Mural Kaiser reader. Um, but yeah, she's got an incredible um, body of work and just and beautiful. And I think that one of the things that was, easy, was interesting to me as a young poet coming up was that she was writing at the same time as, as Sexton and Plath who I, you know, both was obsessed with. But I think that in my particular class, most of the women were obsessed with Plath and Sexton. And I was really got into Rukeyser. And I remember someone asking me what it was that I found so intriguing about Rookaiser as opposed to the others. And I, you know, again, I love them both. It's not really comparative, but I just said, because she lived. And it felt really important to me to have a model of a woman poet that was powerful and writing and also lived and made it through. And I think um, that was essential to me. I was very wary of idolizing the writers who took their own lives. And not because, you know, I, I don't deeply empathize with it, but it felt like there was a certain kind of danger in that. Um, for me personally. And so I was very interested in and curious to um, spend time with a writer who was interested in longevity and legacy and continuing on.
0: Can you share something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: Yeah. I love that question, by the way. It's funny. It's like you have things pulled up and then, and then my desk, I don't know if your desk is like mine, but <laughs> a little the bit. Mass. If yours is a mess, <laughs> <you know>. uh, <laughs> it's just books everywhere. <laughs> I'm like, oh, books, books, books. Um, <clears throat> this is a poem I wrote um, that was, I think it was tricky and hard, only in the sense that I kept asking myself about this image and why it was coming to me and why it mattered. And so I, it was a, another poem that was hard to end, I think. It's called Open Water. It does no good to trick and weave and lose the other ghost to shove the buried deeper into the sandy loam the riverine silt still you come my faithful one the sound of a body so persistent in water i cannot tell if it is a wave or you moving through a month before you died You wrote a letter to old friends saying you swam with a pod of dolphins in open water, saying goodbye. But what you told me most about was the eye, that enormous reckoning eye of an unknown fish that passed you during that last ditch defiant swim. On the shore, you described the fish as nothing you'd seen before, a blue-gray behemoth moving slowly and enduringly through its deep, fathomless North Pacific waters. That night, I heard more about that fish and that eye than anything else. I don't know why it has come to me this morning, warm rain and landlocked. I don't deserve the image, but I keep thinking how something saw you. Something was bearing witness to you out there in the ocean where you were no one's mother and no one's wife, but you and your original skin, right before you died, you were beheld and today in my kitchen with you now 10 years gone, I am so happy for you.
0: Do you wanna share anything else about that?
1: Um, I think that poem surprised me because I don't know why the image came to me and I kept sort of questioning what it was. And um, then of course it was the idea and she was so excited to be seen. And that, you know, here she was swimming with dolphins and doing all these things, but it was that idea of this great big fish staring at her and looking at her and she loved it. And it really, I had never explored it. And when I did, I was like, oh, it's because I, It's a gift to be seen. Where do you write? Um, I write uh, very often at my desk, Um, but I write everywhere. I keep um, this little journal, this craft journal. And I do a lot of my writing longhand in my journal. Um, I often write outside. We have a screened in porch. I'd be out there right now, but it is very loud with birds right now. <laughs> and it, it would be like, see it'd be like a podcast from a jungle. So, um, I, um, it's great because the rose breasted, um, beak are, are, are migrating through. And so they're just gorgeous like parrots basically. Um, but yeah, so I write pretty much everywhere. I travel, um, or I'm beginning to travel again, um, whether or not we are in the pandemic or not in the pandemic, it seems like we are just agreeing to travel again. So I am uh, traveling. And so I, the notebook is where I do most of my writing and I try to be somewhat flexible in, in where, but I do love writing outside.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I, I do to get away from writing. I think I often will blast music as loud as I can to kind of Get into the voice of another, or just to hear a rhythm that's not my own. I think that I can get caught up in my own lyrical impulses, um, and so music can kind of let me be dissolved into something else, and that feels really wonderful. Um, I feel the same way about nature—to um, really go with an idea of not um, not writing, you know, but to just simply watch. So to return to that kind of idea of wonder. Um, but I also do like a, a lot of dancing and a lot of yoga and just being in my body, which um, my poems do are very in the body as well. But um, to be in the body in sort of a free way without kind of um, trying to do anything, but but being present with the breath. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? The first person uh, that reads almost every draft is my stepfather, Brady, and he is um an incredible reader, and he's been reading my work since I was probably eleven, <laughs> maybe nine. And um, you know, he's someone that knows my work, knows what I'm trying to do, uh, trusts me, respects my writing, and has a light touch, <laughs> a gentle touch, but has a has a way of 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 guiding me, and sometimes has um has quite an extensive revision. And sometimes I don't take his, his notes. And sometimes I do, but um, he's been, he's been with me through the, through the whole journey.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: You know, I think rejection is hard, no matter who you are, no matter how much success you've had. I'm lucky to have had, you know, right now, we've got six books in the world and, and lots of um, really beautiful publications and places. And I feel like, that's such a gift. But I'll tell you that anytime a rejection comes, even now, um, it still hurts. And I think um, the biggest thing that I do now is just to allow myself to kind of feel that instead of trying to immediately shove it away and be like, oh, it's fine. Just be like, yeah, I'm kind of bummed about that, you know? And I think um, feeling it is important because then you can move on from it. Um, and also to remember. But it's about the work. Like it's always just more about the work and making the work and that's the fun part. And if someone doesn't get it and doesn't love it and doesn't relate to it or doesn't publish it, that's okay. Like what you made and how it changed you. And, and when I say you, I'm talking about me. That's, that's what I value the most. And it's the act of making that, that keeps me coming back to the page, not, not the recognition.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Well, like I was saying, I set these intentions. and so um, sometimes w- when I was uh, reading your questions before, I was thinking I have a hard time because I don't think I have a favorite word. I think they shift. but uh, but I really today I really like the word release. Well, I like the idea of it being sort of both surrender and setting free.
0: Thank you so much, Ada. I'm so appreciative.
1: Thank you. Your wonderful questions were just really um, eye-opening and a pleasure to spend time with.
0: If you like today's show with Ada Limon, author of the poetry collection, The Hurting Kind, check out my first interview with Ada, where we discussed her poetry collection, Bright Dead Things. We talked about how readers should approach poetry, horses, and crafting endings. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jeffrey Yang and Lawrence Jackson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rabkin. Thank you for listening.